So I mentioned I'm doing a two-part series. Last week was the first on, on uh, the nature of fear and really how to take what we call true refuge in the face of fear, what really helps us work with fear. So I'm going to review a little bit again if this is something that's an alive uh, exploration for you to um, get the talk from last week off the web if you can. There is a, a saying or an understanding that fear and more broadly pain is absolutely inevitable if we're embodied as humans. I mean, it's just part of the deal. But suffering is optional. And, and that's like, almost like the core of the Buddhist teachings that it's a given that we're going to go through you know, grief and fear and pain and unpleasantness and each one of us has the capacity our very nature is such that we can wake up into an awareness that has room for that so that there's uncomfortability but not suffering. And the antidote to these unpleasant states that actually allows that is awareness, that we're really learning how to pay attention. We're learning how to realize the awareness that's always, that's always here. So last week what I described was that although the affect of fear is in every one of our nervous systems, like every one of us has this um, evolutionary response for survival of fight, flight, freeze, we all are rigged in that way, fear is also a learned response depending on our life experience. And what happens is that over time we lock into a posture of fight, flight, freeze. Each of us does this. Um, that comes out of our personal history and it's based on this kind of chronic sense that something's wrong or something's going to go wrong. And we each have our own particular expressions of it. But if you look closely, you can begin to sense this body of fear and that there's no way to be free of fear, free of the suffering, until we become aware of the body of fear. So we begin to pay attention and we begin to be mindful physically what's going on in our body. And if we scan through, even right now, if you return your attention to your body, you'll notice that there's places of tightness that just recontracted without you noticing it because it's part of your habitual armoring. Most of us have raised shoulders a little and kind of knots in the shoulders. That's part of the body of fear. Little children don't necessarily have that. We are usually have a plate of tightness in our belly that we don't even notice, it's so familiar. And yet if you just kind of loosen your belly for a moment on purpose, you'll realize that there was a clenching, some sort of a holding. Most of us tighten our jaw a lot. And the eyes are really part of that mask of fear that when we're trying to figure out and plan and plot our way to get out of danger, so to speak, there's this tightness that comes in our brow. So just to soften the brow and relax the eyes can begin to, from a kind of outside in, um, relax the body of fear. So it's a kind of permanent armoring that, again, we don't notice so much because we're so used to it. Yet there's a power to bringing awareness to it. Uh, Chogyam Trungpa, Tibetan teacher, says that when we're trying to defend our existence it's like we become a bundle of tense muscles protecting ourselves. So that's the physical body of fear. And then last week we went over the mental body of fear, which again we're really familiar with. It's all the ways we obsess. I mean, how many of us know that we spend a lot of time trying to figure things out? and that our minds, this familiar cocoon of thoughts, you know, it's, there's that cartoon of this guy entering the desert and there's a sign saying, you and your own tedious thoughts, next 200 miles, you know. <laughs> and we're going... <laughs> so it's just happening. It's like, it's just this kind of ongoing thing of what's going to go wrong. And one of the big pieces is this sense, this belief that something's around the corner that we're not going to be able to handle because we're not prepared for it. In some way we need to get ready or more prepared for what's going to happen. And of course the truth is it's 
really is that something's going to happen, these bodies are going to die and we're going to lose beings that we love. And so it's not that that's not true, it's just that to live a life always tensing against that is not to live fully right here. So the body of fear in a mental way is this constant chuggling along to try to figure out what's going to go wrong and plan and strategize and so on to try to prevent it. Then there's the behaviors that come from the body of fear. And these are what I've called false refuges, which is basically we live with this restlessness, this kind of anxious anticipation of what's going to happen. And out of that we have all these behaviors that are in some way designed to soothe us. And if you stop in the middle of your day, you just stop in the middle of the emailing or when you're you know, driving the car instead of just stopping and getting out and doing the next thing, you just stop, you'll feel that kind of pushing that's going on, of kind of pressing forward, trying to get through the day, trying to get away from something or prevent something from happening. So we have these false refuges. And, um, you know, in an evolutionary sense, when we're in fight, flight, freeze, it made a real big difference to go fast. Because if you're in danger, you got to get away fast. So there's something in us that thinks that if we just keep speeding up, you know, we'll get away from something. So our minds move a lot. And then, of course, when we're in the body of fear and we want to relieve it, one of the ways we relieve it is, is through aggression. We know this. We know that when we're anxious, there's something about lashing out. There's, Rita Rudner says this. She goes, my grandmother was a very tough woman. She buried three husbands. Two of them were just napping. <laughs> so usually we knock them dead with criticism, but, you know, some people have it their own way. So I've talked a lot about false refuges here, and I do it on purpose because the more we get familiar with the behaviors we use to leave what's uncomfortable in the present moment and try to make our life more comfortable, if we're aware of it, we won't so mechanically or habitually pursue it. So we watch and we notice how much we're checking email. You know, how many of you feel like you check email more than you need to? Can I say? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> We notice in how we preoccupy ourselves and distract ourselves or how we use food or drugs or sleep. In India they call sleep a poor man's nirvana. I like that. (laughs) And then we watch the body of fear as a society. And we know very well that a society, the more fear-based a society is, the more it's going to be aggressive and war-making, right? We just see that. We see it as individuals that the more rigid a personality, the more we need to be right and the more we have to make other people wrong. The more fear, the more we make other people wrong. And we see it with spiritual groups and religious groups that there's this, the more fear-based they are, the more they have to be the chosen ones. It's really important because there's, you know, unless you're better and, and more important and more select, there's some danger there. So in one story, a Taoist master sitting naked in his mountain cabin and he's meditating. And a group of Confucianists enter the door of his hut, having hiked up the mountain, intending to lecture him on the rules of proper conduct. They saw the sage sitting naked before them and they were shocked and asked, what are you doing sitting in your hut without any pants on? The sage replied, this entire universe is my hut. This little hut is my pants. What are, you, what are you fellows doing in my pants? You know? <laughs> so fear leads us to the false refuges of blaming, of pointing fingers. You know, one thing I read was that um, when there's major climate change and a lot of economic distress, and of course that sets off all the survival fears, then there's also an up-leveling of of violence, as many of you can imagine. And one of the places that's most horrific 
is, uh, or that they've seen it through history, is this scapegoating that goes on and there's witch killings through history. That when there's been major climate change, there's a need to blame, in some way take that fear and say, oh, you're causing the trouble. And there have been these um, uprisings of witch killings. And that was, to me, like, it made sense, but it was also horrifying to realize how whether as an individual or society we get caught in the body of fear, we're in a trance. Our world has narrowed. And then we take all these false refuges to act out, and that actually fuels the body of fear. The biggest thing that we start to recognize when we see our behaviors, that every time we go online again because we're just anxious, or every time we eat more, or every time we have to go try to prove ourselves or blame somebody, in some way it reconfirms this kind of small, fearful self. Lily Tomlin put it the best, I think. She said, the trouble with being in the rat race is that even if you win, you're still a rat. So that even in the body of fear, even if for momentarily you, you, know, you aggress and you prove somebody else wrong, or you run away and you, you avoid going, doing something and you don't end up failing because you didn't show up, you know, that in that moment you succeeded in avoiding something, but you're still a fearful self. So the suffering is that the biochemistry of fear and the way it ends up being perpetuated in the body of fear is a really distinct state that does not co-arise with love when we're caught in it. When we're caught in the trance of this separate scared self, we're not feeling wonder, we're not seeing beauty and really appreciating beauty. When we're even in a low level of anxiety and just kind of speeding around, there's not a quality of tenderness that lets us really connect with another, there's not a receptivity because as, as many of you know, I've used this uh, equation a lot in the Chinese script, the word for busy is heart-killing, the symbol, that when we're busy and speeding along and taking false refuge and running from the fear, our heart is tight, our heart is usually numb. So the inquiry then is, you know, what allows us to wake up. And I think a lot of the teacher Manindra, who was, um, he died about ten years ago, and once he was asked why he practiced meditation, and his response was so that I can remember to look at the little purple flowers that grow by the side of the road as I walk in and out of town each day. And the sad thing about being in the body of fear, and I'm not talking about more in major trauma, but just moving, speeding through our life, kind of in some way having our decisions and our actions and our emotions being trying to get away from that anxious undercurrent, is that we don't see little purple flowers by the side of the road. We are just too preoccupied. So the Buddha described the path of freedom often in terms of taking refuge. And what that means is turning to what's truly safe, what's truly trustworthy. And we know what false refuge is. I mean, false refuge is when we're running away in some way. Now, true refuge doesn't mean that we find something that will then save us from dying. I mean, this, being free from fear doesn't mean we get assured we're not going to die. You know, Steve Wright, he says, I was hitchhiking the other day, and a hearse stopped. I said, no thanks, I'm not going that far. (laughs) Tom Paine says, death, it's described as his second choice, you know. So, anyway. So that's not the deal with true refuge. It's not uh, a way of avoiding change or death. Um, True refuge is really described as taking refuge in the awareness and love that are really timeless. So that we begin to discover in this refuge the who we are that doesn't die. We begin to discover a quality of beingness that when we really open to that, when we can really come into that vastness and that heart, 
the fears and currents of unpleasantness can still be there, but there's room. It's like the difference between putting dye in a, in a sink and putting dye in a lake. It's like we are vast enough to include this world and all its changing. So the inquiry for us and the way we're going to spend the rest of the night is really, what does that actually mean? How do we take true refuge in awareness? How, when we're scared, do we find that, that refuge of vastness and love and awareness? What lets us? I'm going to offer kind of two fundamental gateways that when we're caught in the body of fear can be helpful in coming back home again. And the first one um, kind of comes out of a story, a story, an illustrative story I like about the Tibetan teacher Melarepa, uh, who is a lineage holder from the Kagyu. Kind of a hero and a crazy guy and a loner, and he meditated wholeheartedly for years. And one evening, Melarepa returned to his cave after gathering firewood, only to find it filled with demons. And they were cooking his food and reading his books and sleeping in his bed, and they had taken over the joint. Now, he didn't know about non-duality and how they were all just expressions of his consciousness, but he mostly knew he wanted to get these guys out of his cave. But he decided, okay, so there's a reason they're here. They must be something he's supposed to learn. So he first he taught them dharma. He taught them about compassion and how, how you know, just to be present and so on. But, but nothing happened. The demons were still there. And then he lost his patience and got angry and ran at them. And they just laughed at him. And finally he gave up and just sat down on the floor saying, I'm not going away and it looks like you're not going away either. So we'll just live here together. In other words, he just basically said, okay, fear's here, hate's here, anger's here. We'll just, let's let it be. So this is, remember, recognize and allow you know, the what's happening and letting it be here. These are, this is the basic quality of presence. So he was present. At this point, all of them left, except one. Okay? So Mel Rapa said, oh, this one's particularly vicious. And we all know that one. So this one is the fear. This is the core fear. So even we're very, very present and there's a lot more space and we can be with what's there, but there's still some core fear. And that's when we get into bargaining mind where we're saying, all right, I'll try to be here if you'll go away, but it doesn't go away. That's that one, okay? I'm assuming you mostly know what I'm talking about here. So he didn't know what to do. And then what he did was he surrendered himself even further. He walked over and put himself right into the mouth of the demon and said, just eat me up if you want to. Then that demon left too. So the moral of the story is, when the resistance is gone, so are the demons. When the resistance is gone, so are the demons. Now there isn't a deeper dharma are teaching than this. When truly we arrive in that place where there's no argument with how it is, where we just go, fear, it's really unpleasant, it's like this. But some courage says, okay, just let it be as it is. Totally let it be. When there's no resistance at all to it, then the identification that keeps it as bad and us as scared dissolves. There's an opening to that space I described, that refuge, which really is a limitless awareness and love. When the resistance is gone, the demons are gone. Now the Buddha experienced this under the Bodhi tree and through his life. But just to say, um, if you think of the fear as this very vulnerable place, it's kind of, it helps to sense fear as a child, or as a part that's felt hated and judged and shamed and ignored and controlled. One of the most powerful inquiries that I've found working with myself and other people is to feel the fear and in some way say, well, what do you really want from me? So if even in this moment you feel that kind of clench, because I find for myself that unless I'm really, really relaxed and open and free, I can sense some, some tightness, some residual clench in my chest, in my throat. And when I just check in and say, what do you really want? 
and I've done this with many, many people, probably thousands and thousands of people, there's a kind of generic response that what that place in us most wants from us, what it wants from us is our presence. It wants our acceptance, our love, our understanding. I remember the first time I did this, the woman that was asking the question was shocked because her, her fear said, all I want is that for you to accept that I'm here. Just accept that I'm here. But it was an amazing moment for her because in the moment that she said, oh, that's what you want from me, something in her kind of like melted some. And in that space the fear was free to be there and it no longer was suffering. It was just an unpleasant sensation in her chest. I sometimes think of this as spiritual reparenting, that the, the difficult places in us have been um, judged by us, rejected by us, ignored by us, and we're spiritually reparenting the fear. Instead of, of judging or rejecting or ignoring or trying to fix, we're offering what any child most needs from a parent, which is unconditional love and understanding, that it's okay to be the way you are. We're offering that to the fear. Okay, now back to the Buddha, where I was going. So the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree on the night of his uh, awakening, and he sat all night, and as the myth goes, and probably most of you know the myth, Mara, who is the personification of fear and anger and hatred, threw slings and arrows and threw stones and attacked the Buddha in many ways. Others he was feeling attacked by the shadow side. And through the night he sat with this profound awakeness and compassion. And it said that the bows and arrows, that, that all the weapons kind of, that were coming at him turned into flower petals and landed on the floor in front of the ground in front of him became this, just this heap of petals. And he, so he met, he met the fear with that same, what we're calling the spiritual reparenting, with that same acceptance and that same love. But what's really interesting in the story of the Buddha is that Mara vanished after that night, but not for good. He just kept reappearing through the Buddha's life. And every time, so let's say through our lives, every time fear appears for us, for the Buddha, every time this would happen, Mara, in the form of Mara, the Buddha's attendant, Ananda, would come to him and say, you know, oh Lord, the evil one is here, and what should we do? And um, the Buddha would calmly say, it's okay, Ananda, just, it's cool. And he'd, then he'd go to Mara and say, I see you, Mara, and then he'd invite him to tea. So that, that's it. He would say, I see you, and he'd invite him to tea. And I love that part of the mythology of the Buddha because it's just such a wonderful expression of the wisdom in working with fear. Okay, recognize it. Okay, fear is here. And then what does that fear really want from us? Not to be judged, not to be pushed away, not for us to bargain to get rid of it, but okay, just let it be here. Invite it to tea. This is um, the basis of what I've been teaching here as RAIN, R-A-I-N, which is to recognize and allow what's here. And when Mara is really sticky, it gets onto the eye of rain, which is investigate some, get really intimate with. I mean, really invite to tea, maybe even invite to dinner, maybe spend the week, you know, whatever. But that's the eye of rain. When it's really tangly, just recognizing and allowing alone isn't enough. We have to kind of deepen the recognizing and deepen the allowing by investigating and getting intimate. So what I want to do is give you an example of how one person worked with rain in this way. So this is a a man that had kind of a low-key social phobia. But it was the kind of thing where any time he was about to go be with people, he was very aware of um, being nervous. And actually I think a whole lot of us have that. (laughs) But sometimes it gets more labeled formally and his was labeled formally. Um, and, and what would happen is he'd then be with people and it would settle down some and he'd feel okay and connected and re- more relaxed. But then just the next time he was about to be at a meeting with people or at a party or in any situation, that same anxiety would build up. And it became particularly strong for him and when we were talking about this, when he 
um, met a woman that he really, really liked and they started dating, but he found that every time on the way to her house or when she was about to come to his, his heart would start pounding and he'd just be shaking and it was really, it was very, very unpleasant. So he decided to start practicing rain, to um, say, I see you, Mara, and invite Mara to tea and, and to, to work with it. And so it would start, so let's say he'd be going, no, he had to leave the house and, in, a little, in a bit to drive to her house. He'd, um, he'd just sit down and stay still and feel his body and recognize that the fear was there, that's the R of rain, and just allow it to be there. It's kind of like a one Zen master when he was asked, how do you relate with fear? His response was, I agree, I agree. So um, Thoreau put it differently. He says, if a dog runs at you, whistle for it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so that's just another approach. So for this guy, he'd go, okay, fear, fear. And he'd go, okay, yes. You know how I teach that yes meditation? Yes, okay, it's here. And then he would um, do the eye of rain. He'd begin to investigate. And, um, and he asked the, the fear what it was believing. And it, would, it was believing that its story was that um, he would do something wrong and ruin things. That was, you know, which is understandable. That's the story we would run. And then he would say, okay, so how does that feel? And he'd feel the clench in his heart and he'd feel his breath and his stomach being tight. And again, remember with investigate, you also have an intimate attention. He would just in some way offer that message, yes, but do it really kindly. Sometimes I teach people to put their hand on their heart and offer the message. So it's not only are you saying, I see you, Mara, and inviting Mara to tea, you're also offering a really kind presence. Yes. And what he found was that the more times he did it, the more he got this sense, okay, fears like this. Okay, it's this feeling and this beating. But there's this awareness that I can rest in that's big enough. And he went through round after round of pausing and saying, okay, I see you, fear, and okay, yes, until what he discovered for himself was that more and more his sense of who he was was that kind of curious, compassionate space that was present with the fear, not the story of that small self stuck in the fear. So that's the shift in identification. That's when... It's, there's still fear, but it's not personal. It's not my fear, it's just the fear. So keep noticing for that, because the more times we do RAIN, recognize, allow, investigate, get intimate, the more rounds of it, the more that what you're investigating becomes a current in, in you, but it's not mine, it's just happening. So that's an example of how, with some fear, we can use rain, this quality of presence, and be with it, and it still can be unpleasant, but it's not so personal. We're not identified. There's more of a resting in awareness. There's that shift in identity. But what I want to speak to tonight also is that there are times when the fear is so strong and for some people it's because of trauma and some not, but it's strong, that we can't truly say, okay, yes, I'll be with this. It feels like um, it will kill us, annihilate us, overwhelm us. And in fact, there's an intelligence to that because to re-experience some fearful thing without some added resource of awareness or love or safety is just to get re-traumatized. It's just the exact same thing. It's almost like you reinforce the same neural pathways. You're just again a scared person. The alchemy of healing is to experience the old wound, the old fear, but with a new resource. That's learning. You have a new sense of something. And what's that new resource? some sense of love or safety that you didn't have before. So I want to give you an example of how that can work. And I'll tell you a story of 
again, using the the acronym of RAIN, how um, we can begin to call on a resource that can help us be present. So uh, this was a person I was working with at one of our retreats down at Seven Oaks in, uh, in Virginia. And her background was that she had a, an emotionally abusive father, and especially when he was drinking, he was unpredictable, how he'd attack her and criticize her and rip her apart. And she married a man who also had a lot of a temper, and he was really working on it. But any expression of anger would end up uh, really freaking her out. So um, she'd get gripped by fear and, and really not be able to handle it. You know, she felt re-traumatized. So during uh, one of our individual sessions at the retreat, she was describing this and describing uh, how much terror she felt when she, when, you know, at times. And so it was clear that she could recognize, okay, terror, but she couldn't allow it. And I asked her, well, what helps you when it's really strong? What really does help you to have a little space for it? What gives you some comfort? And she told me that uh, the times at the retreat she felt the best is when she went out to the, these oak trees. There's a few really big, beautiful oak trees down there and just sat right near one of those oak trees. And there was something about the oak that felt like this great mother that was kind of helping to hold, hold things for her. And the other thing that helped her was sometimes the metta, the loving-kindness phrases, which is what we'll be exploring next week some. But when she um, just felt like in some way there was uh, loving energy coming towards her, then she felt like she could remember things that would happen with her husband and there was a little more room, like that lake. There was a little more space for what was painful. So I encouraged her at this retreat to, um, to do a lot of the metta practice and be outside a lot. I figured, don't, don't bother going at the fear. You don't have to try to invite it in for tea. Just build that sense of, of feeling protected by the trees and feeling loving energy. And then when it's time, you'll find yourself better able to work with what really does need attention. But not too early. Wait till you feel some of that comfort. So this was her report to me, which I thought was really, really touched me, was that the next day... Um, she was sitting by one of those oaks and um, everybody else was in the hall and she had come outside to sit. And she, felt, she had some memories that really brought up a lot of strong fear. And she said, I imagine the fear was sitting next to me. It was too much to feel it in me right now. So she said, I had it sit right next to me. It was under the tree too. So she had this big oak tree and she had this fear next to her. And then she said, I just made sure I felt the this, this sky around me and I felt the tree and I actually touched the tree so I could feel its hardness and its strength and how strong it was. And I actually felt a maternal energy surrounding me. And then she said, I brought in a few other spirit allies just to help increase that. You know, she, had, she brought me to mine and she brought a grandmother that's not alive anymore and another friend. And she said, and, and she said there was something about, I just, she felt surrounded by the tree and by our energies. And she said, and then I could begin to let some of the energy of that fear that was next to me kind of be felt. She said, then there was enough room. And that's when she could start more fully practicing rain. She said, okay, fear, I I know you're here, and I I accept you're here. I allow it. That's recognize and allow. And so she said, and then she'd feel the tree again around her, and she'd start saying, okay, so what's really this like? What's really going on here? And she'd start letting herself feel it in her body, and and feel the, um, the grip of it in her, in her heart and how painful it was. And what happened, she said, was that the fear got really big and strong, but the more she kept feeling the tree around her, the more it kind of turned into grieving. And she got this, this sense, she heard this voice that inside her that said, my father will never be really a father for me. And there was this grieving and letting go of having a father that just couldn't really be who she had wanted him to be. A huge compassion ended up filling the space. This is the end of rain, that when we've really been fully present, 
with the fear and with what's under the fear, the grief, then there's this natural awareness. And it's natural awareness. And is both not identified, she was no longer identified with the scared self, and back resting in a natural awareness. So I wanted to share this with you because sometimes we hear in these Dharma talks to lean into fear. And it's true that eventually for the demons to dissolve there has to be no resistance. Truly recognizing and allowing and being with fully. But not always right away. And it's part of our compassion and our wisdom with ourselves to sense if fear feels really strong first sense where the love is, where the connection is, where there's some sense of belonging. Now for this woman it was with nature and with trees and I know for myself I go down to the river a lot because I I feel some sense of the um, kind of like the goddess of the universe, the love of the universe is just kind of moving through that river and it just let it move through me. But we can call on nature and we can call on the beings in our life that do feel safe or do feel loving and if there's not a person like that because I run into many people that there's nobody really they can they feel so disconnected it's hard to find the love and safety through another person it can be through our dog it can be through a sense of great spirit or the Buddha it's like the Dalai Lama with one man when he said what do I do with my fear his response was let yourself be held in the heart of the Buddha. So there was a sensing of, okay, I'm, I'm resting in the heart of the Buddha. Each one of us has some tendril of ways that we belong. Now for some of us it needs some developing, but that's, being the, that's the path. Develop the pathways to where love and safety is. And the more that we've developed them, we can call on that as help to help us be present with the fear that's here. Now it's not just calling on what's internal, we can also reach out to humans, living humans. For many people that are working with fear, I really encourage not to work on it alone, but rather practice RAIN with a therapist, with a teacher, with a healer, or just let a friend know that there's fear there. I love the story of the, the mother that her children were fighting and then there was this big thunderstorm and she heard these voices upstairs that way after they'd gone to bed. They'd gone to bed angry at each other but she heard these voices and she said, what's going on up there? And there was a little voice saying, well, we're in the closet forgiving each other. <laughs> Our feeling of belonging with each other helps us to have room for fear. The Buddhists taught that, you know, our fear is great but the truth of our connectedness is greater yet. So I've over and over again sensed, especially with people who are facing um, serious disease or dying, that when you really know that there's nothing that can save you and that this body's going to go, then you can truly sense, well, what is it that can hold this life in a way that truly is a refuge? And it's always love. If we listen to the messages of people uh, when they knew they were going to die on 9-11 to loved ones, they were never in those messages reciting what that person had done they were blaming them for or they weren't even blaming themselves, so it was always very, very straightforward. It's, I love you, take good care of yourself. They took refuge in love. story of a boy with a rare disease, he had to live his entire life in a sterile plastic bubble. For a single germ, an unsterilized touch could be fatal. Anyone reaching to him through the hermetically sealed opening in the bubble had to wear sterilized gloves and everything that came to him, books, food, utensils, gifts, had to be decontaminated before passing through that opening. He was sealed off, isolated in a permanent quarantine. But even the airtight sterile bubble couldn't save him. When the boy understood that he was dying, he asked for only one thing, to reach outside the bubble and touch his father. 
doomed, knowing that this encounter was death itself, the boy reached out and touched his father's hand. So there's something that is bigger in this universe than even the dying of these bodies. There's something we can trust in. And it's already inside us. We sometimes talk about cultivating it, but it's already here. Right now, awareness is here. There is a still alertness. There is an openness. And there's a tenderness that's here, that's always here. That anything that's going on, if we can pause, we can re-find, we can come back home to loving presence. And sometimes if our habit has been to be in the body of fear, we need to, to develop a healthy habit of turning towards where love is. It's like the poet Hafiz says, ask the friend for love, ask him again, for I have found that every heart will get what it prays for most. Whatever we pray for, if we really sense our prayer for love, because we are sensing the possibility of love or that love exists, it's already here. The prayer is coming from the love and it will carry us home. Again, the poet Hafiz, this is called It Felt Love. He says, How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. For most of us, there's a reflexive aversion when we feel fear and mostly we're trying to figure out how to get rid of it. And that's okay. It's really totally forgivable and understandable. We're designed not to like it. So part of the reason I wanted to spend some time with it because if we can begin to pause and sense fear, as one of my friends described it, um, that when fear, it's like a little light going off saying, about to grow, about to grow, we're at the edge of something. And if instead of false refuge, something in us gets interested or cares about waking up, we can actually turn towards awareness. Rumi writes of night travelers who search the darkness instead of running from it, a companionship of people willing to know their own fear, and that realize that in the tenderness of the pain, the night travelers discover the awakened heart. Rumi puts it this way, he says, don't turn away, keep your gaze on the bandage place, that's where the light enters you. So there's a gift in bringing presence to rain, the rain, and there's a gift to bringing that to the fear that we normally run from. In the moments that instead of running, we stay, in those moments that we stay and there's some quality of caring of offering a kind presence there's a shift in our sense of who we are and instead of being trapped in the story of the scared self consciousness wakes up out of the story that's the gift that in the moments that we stay with fear consciousness wakes up out of the story of a scared self and inhabits that loving presence that's always and already there but was forgotten. The other side of fear is love. So I'd like to take a a few moments to um, do a short meditation. As you know, we usually end with a very short opportunity just to feel into what we've been talking about experientially. So the invitation is to sit in a way that's comfortable but be alert, be here. as we do so often when we pause and and sit together, just sense what can bring you right into presence in this moment. What helps you remember? Is it feeling the breath with a gentle attention? 
Is it listening to sounds? Is it relaxing in your body? Tonight we spoke of remembering something that brings us safety, comfort, love. You might take a moment to let that come to mind. Whatever for you reminds you of belonging in some way. It might be to a pet, to part of this natural world, to someone that you know loves you. that as you sit and breathe sense that you could let the feeling of belonging the love, the connection be felt in a very visceral way in your heart just relaxing with it And if there's any place in your body or your heart that's feeling tense or afraid, you can let that loving energy bathe it. So if there's something going on in your life that's disturbing, you don't have to rev it up in your mind, but just to sense how that might be living in your body right now. Might be a conflict in a relationship might be something you're anticipating in terms of your health, somebody else's well-being. You might be afraid for another person, child, parent, partner, friend. Just so the invitation is to sense if there's some fear, if Mara is here in some way, just to recognize that and allow that to be there. So in a sense you're inviting Mara to tea, but feel that the whole space of where you're having tea is filled with the light of care and presence. That this place in you that might be afraid can be bathed in loving presence. Remembering the dog or the tree or the friend or the Buddha that helps you know you belong. Notice what happens when there's no resistance to the fear can feel the currents of loving-kindness flowing over it. And if it helps to offer that presence in a very visceral way by putting your hand on your heart, just that message to the fear as a parent would give to a child of saying, I see you and it's okay. You can just be here. Notice what happens when you give full permission with kindness. sensing the possibility of it being not my fear, but just the fear, a current in this ocean of presence.
How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. stay. So thank you for your presence and attention. As I mentioned, next week will be, this, the natural segue of this is to explore more fully uh, the first of the Brahma Viharas, which is loving-kindness. Um, but before we go, as we do, this is our closing ritual as a community, uh, two things. I want to just remind you to see if, as, as, you're, on, as you're leaving, to at least with two people you've never said hello to, um, to greet them and find out something about them. Just an invitation for the evening, to cre- part of creating Sangha and community. And to ask if there's anyone that needs a ride so we can make sure you get home. Anyone over here? Rides, 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 rides. Anyone in the middle? Middle area over here? In the balcony? This might be the first. <laughs> Okay, we're all already always home. (laughs) Happy evening. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www. Dot imcw dot org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.